Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Emma Haslam. Her journey of infertility led her to being turned down for NHS treatment, and so she ended up abroad to have a baby. And since then, she has set up her own company to help people globally expand their families. So I'm excited to have Emma here today to talk more about that, her journey, and everything she's got going on. So thank you so much, Emma, for being here today. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Hi. So yes, thanks, Sarah. I'm Emma Haslam. Um, and I am infertile and following my own journey with, um, infertility and being turned down for state funded treatment here in the UK through the NHS. Um, I had private treatment abroad and had my son or our son, um, and had a really great experience but found it all quite overwhelming um found it very difficult to kind of know if we were doing things safely if we'd chosen the the best fit clinic for us and all the bits in between like where do you get your medication from and when do you book your flights and where should we stay and how long will we be there and all of the things and um we desperately looked for for help and support and it just it wasn't out there Um, so we kind of fudged our way through winging it, which really isn't a, an approach I recommend for anybody. And I, you know, while I had a great clinical experience, thankfully, um, the, the, the kind of the winging it process put a lot of pressure on us and it made me feel quite stressed throughout. Um, however, we did have a great clinical experience. As I mentioned, we saved so much money by going abroad and we had moved in with my parents and only had a kind of finite amount of money saved and once it was gone it was gone so we knew that we could have a cycle in the UK or we could go abroad and have two or three cycles um and actually on our third cycle I conceived my son um so it's a good job we did kind of go abroad And then after I had my son, I really wanted other people to know that if they were going to be looking at private treatment options, that there were other choices to be made and other things that might be appropriate for them that could be kind of more accessible, more affordable, and also to have the option of support throughout treatment because I felt very lonely and isolated um, going through it and I didn't want anybody else to feel that way. So in... 2019 set up your IVF abroad with my husband Adam um and then yeah haven't really looked haven't really looked back and I support people globally um who want to have fertility treatment and testing in Europe and I help people to kind of stop the waiting and get some answers take back some control because there's so much of this journey that's out of control um, help them to make informed, impartial decisions, because that's something that's super important to me, that people are, have got the right information without bias and they can make decisions that are right for them. Um, and, you know, helping people to stretch the budgets further because it's a numbers game, right? So stretching the budgets further, uh, linking them with the best, some of the best clinics in the world that, that best match their needs 
to give themselves the best chances of success, but to have no regrets, whatever the outcome, um, because there are no guarantees. Nobody can guarantee, you know, a successful outcome at the end of it, sadly. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing ever since. And it, and it, it's fantastic. Um, you know, I also do lots of free work as well. So I've got a podcast and a blog, um, because I don't want budget to be something that stops people from, from getting some support. And then I help people through one-to-one services and my, my program as well. So can you take us back to kind of like the beginning when you first figured out that you were infertile and that you were going to kind of have to go through some sort of process if you wanted to start a family? Yeah, sure. So naively, my husband and I, Adam, um, we began trying, casually trying after our wedding. Um, and we'd had a, a very much a whirlwind, dreamy romance Um and, you know, we just presume that it would happen. Um, like I think lots of people do just think it's going to happen, even though infertility affects like one in, I think it's one in six in the States and I think it's one in seven in the UK. So, I mean, it, that's a lot of people, right? Um, we just presumed it would happen. And after about six months of casually trying, we were like, hmm, maybe we're not doing it at the right time. Um maybe we need to try all these old wives tales. And so we kind of went from casually trying to really trying and nothing was happening. So we were kind of a year in and how old was I? 32 maybe. So we were like, maybe we should go to the doctors and, you know, run some tests. So we, we did that, went to the GP and um, they ran some tests on both Adam and I, which indicated that there were issues potentially on both sides. So myself, um, perimenopause and low AMH. And for my husband, low testosterone and um, low sperm count and motility. We were then referred to, to gynecology to kind of um, have a, you know, a further look at us, ran some more tests, did an ultrasound. I didn't have very many follicles. Um which when you are more fertile, you would produce more follicles each month and in the follicles are where the eggs are. Um, So it was a pretty bleak picture. And we were basically told at that point that we had no chance of conceiving at all naturally. um, And that the only chance we had would be via IVF. And we had a three to 5% chance of that working. So then what was the IVF journey like for you? So... From kind of receiving that news, I mean, that was probably one of the lowest points for for us both on that journey, because not only to be told that you'll never conceive naturally, but then to be told, even with IVF, you've got a really, really tiny chance of it working. But then the next thing was, if you you want NHS-funded treatment, you are entitled to one round, but you need to lose, um, you don't work in stones in the US, do you? But um, I'll have to work it out what it is in kilograms, a lot of weight. I had to lose a lot of weight. Six stone, if people do understand what stones are, 14 pounds in a stone, um, a lot of weight. And I went away to do that and I lost the weight over over kind of a two-year process um, of healthy eating and exercise. And then I went back, we went back to be told that actually the rules had since changed in our area and could have gone and lose another couple of stone, another sort of 28 pounds. I was like, not really no and you know bearing in mind that my diagnosis had nothing to do with weight 
And it's all about money, you know, and how the local care commissioning groups in the UK choose to spend their money. So in some areas in the UK, you might get three rounds of funded treatment. In other areas, you'll get none, um, very much dependent on your postcode. But also the rules that they set in terms of who does and doesn't qualify also depends on, on you know, the people making the decisions with the purse strings. So um, had I lived like five miles down the road, I would have qualified for treatment. So at that point, it kind of stalled our journey because we, you know, had gone away, I'd lost this weight, and we very much thought we had a plan and we were going to have NHS-funded treatment um, to then be told that actually, could I just go and lose some more weight? And the thing is, I was healthy, I was very fit. Um, I mean, I wasn't unhealthy before, that was, that's the annoying thing. But, you know, I did what they asked me to do. And time was ticking on, you know, like if you've got a diagnosis of low MH and perimenopause, you don't want to be hanging around. Um, so I felt very much like time had been wasted. It was a real kick in the teeth. Um, and that kind of paused our journey for a second um, while we tried to figure out what to do. So then what made you guys kind of figure out like, hey, there are options abroad if we, you know, want to take it out of the UK? Yeah, so... I can't remember what the exact moment was because originally we started looking at UK private treatment, but the, you know, the first thing we we saw was just how, how extraordinarily expensive it is. I mean, the States is even more expensive than that. Um, and it's very expensive here. Um, we knew we had very low odds of it working. We knew that once the money had gone, it had gone. Like we'd moved in with my parents, you know, newlyweds and don't get me wrong. It's a privilege that we could do that but also not ideal in a small house living with your parents as newlyweds. And, and all of the fun stuff stopped, like going on holiday and, you know, we wanted to buy a house and, you know, instead we, we plowed money into doing this. So we, we saved up the money thinking we would have treatment in the UK and we had some consultations and we just didn't really feel the connection with any of the three clinics in the UK. And we also found the process of trying to get costings out of people for treatment really difficult and so in one of the cases like we'd paid I think I mean the dollar and the pound are very similar aren't they in the amounts at the moment so you know let's say $300 for a consultation for a clinic that actually when we got the real costings we could never have afforded to have treatment there anyway so we spent nearly you know nearly a thousand dollars on consultations at clinics that we didn't feel the love for and we were no further forward and we just spent money that you know was there for our fertility treatment. It just felt very like cookie cutter. I don't know. It just, yeah, I, I, we just didn't get the feeling. Um, and it also felt like a lot of pressure. Like it's not going to work probably in one round. So why are we doing it? You know, this just doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do, but we weren't sure what the right thing to do was. And we'd explored um, like adoption and surrogacy and they didn't feel like the right options for us. So I'm not sure why or what made me type something into Google. I mean, we're both quite well-traveled and, you know, like I went at 30, I decided to pack in my job and just go around the world traveling by myself. I happened to meet Adam like three weeks before I did that. And he then joined me about six months in, but I think we're both we're not phased by going to other countries and you know there is sometimes I think 
thought that, you know, we're very lucky with like the NHS in the UK. We've got very high standards of healthcare, like lots of other countries have, but sometimes that can make you think, oh, but is it going to be safe elsewhere? Is it going to be as good elsewhere? And of course, you've got to be careful where you go. You've got to do your research. Um, But, you know, we were open to the fact that there will be other places in the world that also do this and do it really, really well. Um, But really, the only stories we'd ever heard about people going abroad for treatment was around things like cosmetic surgery which obviously IVF isn't but you know going abroad having a procedure like the teeth done or or something and it's gone completely wrong and you'd read you know you'd see an article in a newspaper about that I mean there will have been you know hundreds thousands of other people that have gone abroad and had the same procedure probably a different clinic um, and had a great experience but you never heard those stories right you just hear those kind of scary stories um so I had heard those and I remember when I said to my mum like I, I, I just started looking online and um I remember saying to my mum you know we might go abroad and she was absolutely horrified she was like no don't do that like how do you know it's gonna be safe and you know and she was quite right in what she said because how did I know and while I did a lot of my own research I didn't really know if I'm honest you know back then we were vulnerable and desperate and you know I I could just see the cost savings was was so significantly less and you know we like traveling and I was like well look we're just going to explore it and we're going to just see um so those kind of google searches led us to booking some consultations with clinics abroad and um I think the three that we had were actually free so there was like no cost just to kind of dipping your toes in and 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 seeing and, and I am a natural researcher so I had done as much kind of homework as I could with the knowledge that I had then um but we had the consultations and it just felt completely different like first of all I didn't feel like I was being judged on my BMI my weights um and it felt much more holistic um I felt like a client I felt listened to not judged and it was just a completely different experience. And that was the same at all three clinics. Um, you know, the coordinators who are the people who you deal with at the end of the, um, like your case holder at the end of the, the emails, you know, the, the English was brilliant, really efficient, so helpful. Um, and it, yeah, it just felt like the right thing to do. It was very easy to get the costings from them. So it was very, you know, clear that, it was certainly so much cheaper. And as far as I was aware from the research that I'd done, you know, there were a a regulated clinic, a registered clinic, a highly regarded clinic, um, and a short, you know, a short flight for us into Europe. Um, And so we decided that we were going to do it, much to the horror and disgust of our parents who were, I think, genuinely very worried. I mean, now they're like, obviously they're like go abroad go and chat to Emma um but you know I can I can see the fear and 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 if I'm honest we were a little bit uncertain as well you know we we felt reassured enough obviously to go ahead and do it but you know it was a little bit of a leap of faith because we didn't have anywhere anywhere to turn to kind of get the information and support that we needed but we desperately wanted to to do this um and we knew that this gave us you know, the best chances, the clinic had great success rates, no waiting lists. And, you know, we wanted to, to get on with it. And thankfully, we did choose to go abroad because we did need three rounds. And 
on the third round our son was born. So had it, you know, had we have had it in the UK, there was no more money, then we wouldn't have our son today. So yeah. So then did you only have to go abroad for like consultations and the treatments or like how much travel were you doing to get treatment abroad? Yeah. So actually the consultations, I mean, some people do go out and have them face to face, but the vast majority of people have the consultations um, like this on a video link with the doctors. So for most people, it's one trip. Um, And a lot of clients of mine and myself included start their medication in their home countries, start the initial monitoring in their home countries, and then fly out for kind of the final monitoring and then their treatment. So, um, you know, they might visit the clinic two or three times, depending on what treatment they're having. And, you know, people can be needed for anything from kind of two days to 10 days, for example. Um, I've got other clients who might come from further afield. So clients who say, for example, are in the States, they may decide to go to Europe for the whole thing, start their, get the medication in Europe, start the medication in Europe um, so that they're not literally getting on a flight, getting off a flight and going straight to the clinic for treatment. So they've got a little bit of time to acclimatize. Um, you know, so they might, they might spend three weeks away from home. And so obviously then you kind of turn this into, I want to help people. I want people to not be kind of doing all the legwork that you did to have a little bit of ease in the process. So what was it like to then start sharing your story and building these resources for other people? It's been very cathartic for me. I had awful postnatal depression after um, the birth of my son. I think probably due to all of the trauma of going through infertility, you know, miscarriage loss and, going from one cycle to the next and not dealing with with failed cycles so unsurprisingly I got postnatal depression and um we kind of when we were going through treatment like my husband made a flippant comment sort of saying you know we should do we should like help people with this when all this is over and then he mentioned it again at that time um and I was like, do you know what? I think I really think that you're right and I was thinking this is a good idea I think it'll be helpful for me too to be able to take those experiences to help other people, which in, in turn has helped me, I think, to um, process what's happened. I mean, I have had therapy since, um, which was super helpful, but I just wanted to be able to take my experiences, good and not so good, to help other people, um, to try and have a different experience than one I did, and to know that if they're going to have private treatment, that there are choices to be considered. And when I looked for this help, you know, there wasn't anybody, there are now people doing bits of stuff like this, of course, but I wanted to be completely impartial. So not owned by clinics. I don't take commission from clinics either because I personally feel like if you go down that route, it's really difficult then to, I think, truly be on a client's side because you're going to be, I feel like you'd be swayed by who's paying the most commission. But some people use that as a model because it means they can charge lower fees to their clients. So I'm not saying that they're wrong, but for us, we looked at what did we need and want and that didn't exist and tried to create a service from that. Um, And then also recognizing that not everybody can afford to pay for support. You know, what free things could I also do to help people? so that I can, you know, I can sleep at night and I can, I can use this. And it's been, it's been the best experience in the last 
September, I left my um, paid for job. You know, I was in employment part time. So I returned after maternity leave and I kind of grew your IVF abroad alongside my part time job and being a mum. And then it, it started to just get too much. Um, you know, we launched the, the business, got our first client only a couple of months before COVID hit. And I then thought, well, there's no way we're going to have any clients now. Like, and, and really surprisingly, we did. Um, and people were in the main able to still travel. I mean, it was complicated. Um, and obviously we helped with all of that, but it's just grown and grown from them. And, and yeah, last September, I I left my part-time job to, to go and do this all in. Um, and I love it. Like it's the best job in the world. Um, and it's just my absolute privilege to be able to, to help people through such a difficult and vulnerable time. Yes. No. So you don't take commissions from different centers, but you obviously have a place that you went and yet got your treatment. So do you find that people are like, where did you go? What, what were your experiences like that there is some sort of bias into where you ended up having treatment? Yes, but I don't tell people where I had treatment. And the reason is I don't believe in a one size fits all. So, um, I work, I can recommend whatever clinic I want to because we're completely independent. So at the moment, I would say that I've vetted about 35 clinics. So that's a huge pool of clinics to work with. But equally, if somebody came to me with something that didn't fit within one of those 35 clinics, I've got the knowledge and experience and connections to go out and find clinics that do. Um, so, yeah, I I don't believe in the cookie cutter approach. I think there are clinics that's you know, it's about destination. So it's about where do you feel comfortable? It's about budget. It's about where you can have treatment depending on your circumstances. You know, if you're, in, if you're say a single female or you're from the LGBTQI plus community, you know, these are, these are things we need to take into to consideration as well. Um, and then there are things like communication style of a clinic versus someone's personality um, and clinics and doctors that specialize in certain things better than in other places. So all of those things I have worked on and continue to work on to be able to offer a really bespoke service to my clients, because I think that is super important. And when I did my research for us, I didn't know to take all those things into consideration. I was going more on price um, and things did, you know, things did work out okay for us, but I couldn't say to you that the clinic we used was the most suitable for us in terms of our diagnosis. In fact, it wasn't because we didn't know what we were doing. But yes, it was safe and, and, and you know, regulated. So there's, I think there's a lot that goes into finding a, a best fit clinic. Um, so that's why I don't discuss it because otherwise everyone will just go, right, we'll go where Emma went. But actually that might not be the right clinic for them. Um, so yeah, I just don't say where I went. Well, I say that I went to the Czech Republic, but I don't say what clinic. Right, and like you said, after doing more research, you've realized that the place you went might not be the best for you. So you just shared that your clinic was in the Czech Republic. Would you be willing to share a little bit about kind of where these clinics are and maybe like, are there a lot in one country and less in others and kind of where these clinics you vetted are? Yeah, sure. So I work across Europe um, in places like Spain, Greece, and the Czech Republic are three of the kind of the biggest hubs for um, fertility treatment. And they hold, um, you know, a large number of the clinics that I work with. But then there are also clinics in places like um, Bulgaria, 
Finland, Portugal's another kind of popular place. Um, have I missed anywhere out? Anywhere else out? I think that's everywhere. And you mentioned earlier that you have done extensive travel. So can you share a little bit about the travel you've done outside of fertility treatments? Yeah, sure. I love talking about traveling. Um, so I've been, I've done quite a lot of Europe and then I've done sort of Australia, um, Thailand, India, China, New Zealand. Um, haven't made it to the States yet. I was meant to be coming to um to New York for my 40th, which was two years ago, but COVID ruined that and it ruined it for my 41st. And then we bought another house, so we spent the money now. Um, so I haven't managed to get to the States yet or Canada, um, which are kind of on my on my list. Um, but yeah, that's I think the main places I've been to, and then obviously a lot of um a lot of Europe as well. And so what is it that you kind of like look for in travel that you have picked these places and and traveled extensively um sometimes it's to experience a completely different culture so for example india um i actually did it with a, a group of people but people that i didn't know um and it was called a basics tour and it was very much doing it like indian people do it so there was no kind of like there was no air conditioning we traveled on you know third class on on, on sleeper trains um, and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a luxurious holiday to India. It was, you know, backpacking around India and seeing India for, you know, what India's like. And I was there for seven weeks, which is a long time. Um, so I really wanted to experience a culture that is so different and a world that is so different to the one that I, I live in. Um, and spent some time working in an orphanage, which was amazing, um, and helping at some of the, they've got like big community kitchens, I guess, where they'll feed people who, who need support. Um, so that was very humbling to do that. Um, and, and China, I actually worked in a school at the time and I was selected to go on the, on, on the trip to China because of the traveling that I'd done. Um, so that was slightly different because we were taking a load of, um, school kids. So it was more of a work thing, but I was attracted to the trip to China again because of the, you know, such a different country um, and a communist country just to kind of experience that, what that was like. And I like to travel, you know, I do like to kind of do more of the authentic styles of, of traveling. And I love going on sleeper trains and, and getting to kind of see the real, the real country. Um, and my, my big trip where I sort of did, you know, Thailand and, and Australia and, and New Zealand was very much about wanting to kind of do the the gap year thing. Um, I didn't do the gap year thing at 18. And so I did it at 30 and I kind of wanted to do it before I maybe settled down and I'd had a relationship breakdown. I wasn't particularly enjoying my job. I'd been offered a big promotion. I didn't want to do it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I worked in advertising then. And I knew that wasn't really my kind of thing, but I was earning good money. And so I made, you know, made the decision to save up and leave and go and do this because if not, I was never going to do it. Um, and again, you know, I mean, Thailand is culturally very different, um, but more, but, you know, I think now very well trodden by um, people from other countries and I think slightly touristy in, in, in parts. Um, but I love to go and example the food and the different cultures. Um, 
uh, yeah, we just both, my husband as well, he absolutely loves traveling and he ended up joining me on my gap year. His father sadly passed away and he said, I just, you know, I want to, I want to kind of quit my job. How would you feel about me coming and joining you? Bearing in mind, we'd only been on two days. And I was like, okay, because I was traveling with loads of random people anyway. So I just thought, well, do you know what, if he comes out and I didn't really think too much into it, if I can come out and join me and we'll just see, and then never left. Um, and some of that time we spent working in Sydney, like with, with, you know, with jobs and sort of living more like a local. Um, and then we traveled, you know, the North and South Island of New Zealand once we'd saved up to kind of do that um, before we then came back home. And I'd been away for 15 months when we came back. Um, so yeah, I just, I think it broadens the mind. I think it's great to see how other people live. Um, and I think it's, it's humbling. Um, it makes you grateful for what you've got. Um, and I think it just opens your eyes and, and your, your mind to different ways of living. And, you know, it can be quite insular just in your own little world, in your town, in your country, you know, if you don't get to see other places, which I know again is a privilege that not everybody, everybody gets to be able to do that. But, um, I think, you know, I've kind of done lots of European travel. I've been a holiday rep a long time ago when I was at university, um, so I've always liked to, you know, to go away and experience the countries. And like in the UK, it's pretty cold <laughs> and it rains a lot, particularly where I live. And I do like warm climates. Um, so that's definitely a pull for me to know to go somewhere that's that's warmer than this. <laughs> yes. Now, you just said that you had only been on two dates with your now husband prior to going abroad mm-hmm. and then he came with you. So did your family either ever kind of say like, what are, what are you doing uh, having him come on this trip? And then how did things progress afterwards? So there was a bit of a tenuous link between us. Um, so Adam's, so my friend Louise is married to Adam's brother, John. So we, you know, we kind of knew that he was an okay person, not just some like random person. Um, and they didn't really say much. I mean, bearing in mind, like I'd gone, I I was in another country. I think I was in India at that point. So I remember messaging up mom, I think it's like Skype back then, I think we're using, but saying like, oh, um, my friend Adam is going to come and join me to do some traveling, which was the truth, you know, the truth, like we've been on two dates, but that was it. Um, please can he bring like would you mind taking some of my stuff um to meet him in like an hour down the road um and he'll bring it out for me and she was like yeah yeah sure so they kind of they get to, they got to meet briefly in a car park in manchester um and he took the stuff and then you know and she said she instantly liked him he's you know he's a very likable character um and i, I don't know i've never asked her what she thought but she knew that he was a, like, my friend was married to his brother. So I just said, it's, you know, his friend is going to come out. His dad's just passed away. Can he get to bring some stuff? So maybe she didn't think too much of it. I, I honestly don't know because I've not asked her. But um, I think, I mean, he arrived, you know, literally had lost his dad a couple of months before that and they were very close. So he was grieving for his father. But I think we had had such a good connection. Um anyway and like it it just felt natural and it just worked 
Um, and I wasn't looking for anything. I don't think he was looking for anything, but we kind of got talking and he asked me out and I said, well, I'm going away in a few weeks. He was like, oh, come on, you know, it'll cheer me up and why not? And so we did and we went to watch Harry Potter and we went out for dinner on one day and then another another day we went out for dinner and it just, it just felt natural and I knew I really liked him, but I knew he was going away. So I, I didn't do much with that because there's no way I wasn't going to go for a boy like and he would never suggest that and I, and I suppose I didn't think that I was gonna end up marrying this person but even so I would still have gone um and we just stayed in touch as friends and we'd you know we'd email each other and stuff and then one day out of the blue about three months after I'd gone I just got a message saying how easy is it to get a job in Australia I was like I've no idea I'm not in Australia and um I was like why he was like oh I just like would it be weird if I if I came and did some traveling with you like I know you you've you go into youth hostels and you're meeting different people. Like, would it be strange if I came? And I think I sort of said, my instant reaction was like, yeah, brilliant. But I think I was like, yeah, you can come, but then if we don't get on, you'll have to go and <laughs> travel somewhere else. <laughs> um, because I, I was so like, this was like my dream trip and forever coming trip. And what I didn't want to do is it to be awkward or spoiled um, and I wanted like to make that clear to him before he decided to pack up all of his things and come and join me in another country. Um, cause I didn't want the pressure, I suppose, but literally like he arrived and, um, it, it just, I don't know, it never left. Like it just kind of worked, I guess. Um, and we did six weeks in a camper van up and down the East coast of Australia. And then we went out to the West and then we really needed some money. So we were like, right, we need to work. Um, I had some relatives out there. They put us both up for a little bit while we got jobs. And then we got like this really small, disgusting bed sit, but in a really nice area by the sea. Um, and then like just worked and kind of did our thing and then decided that, you know, what we wanted to do next was, was save up. So we spent six months living in Australia together and then saved up to go and travel New Zealand. So we did that. And then I think it was just obvious then it, that, you know, things probably speed up, don't they, when you're spending 24-7 with somebody. Um, and it just was easy. Like, I'm not saying we hadn't had our moments, but it was generally easy. And we were living the dream and having a great time. And then came back, moved in with Adam's mum. And then three months later, we'd um, rented an apartment. And on the day we moved in, he proposed. Um, and then... Two years later, I think we were married. And have you ever talked about moving out of the UK and living somewhere else? Yes. So when we first came back from from Australia, we were adamant that we would emigrate to Australia or New Zealand. Like it was this, like we're like, this is going to happen. Um, Like even told our families, we knew it'd be very difficult though. And we knew I would probably need to retrain um, I'd thought about training to be a social worker at that point. Um, but then we obviously, we wanted to have a family. So then that was like the next step. And that kind of then took a lot longer than we thought it was going to. That took over any kind of plans to do that. And then as kind of time has gone on, while I would love to live in Australia and I, or New Zealand, it is such a long, long way away from our families. And now that we've got our son, I'm not sure that I could take him that far away um, from our families that are within, like my family's 
all within 15 minutes to half an hour away from us. And Asim's family are all within like an hour, an hour and 15. So we're very lucky. Um, we talked about moving to Europe since Brexit. That makes things are a lot, it's not as easy anymore. Um, I think what we would like to do in time is I can work from anywhere now. And Adam's job allows him to work flexibly and work from home. So we plan to um, probably spend summers in another country when my son's on school holidays, because of course he's at school now. So you've got to kind of factor that in. So for now, I think we're going to be staying in the UK um, and potentially look at the summers, summers away from home. So kind of keeping up with the traveling and, and maybe going to some more obscure places. Like we want to go to Slovenia for a summer. We'd love to do that. Um, but then maybe perhaps as time goes on, look at getting a property, perhaps abroad that we maybe rent out, but then can also use ourselves as a base for, you know, the holidays. Um, but actually moving to another country, I'm not sure, never say never at this point in time. No, um, had we not have had our son, I don't think we'd be in the UK. Well, I know we wouldn't be in the UK. Whether it would be Australia, because it's very difficult to get into, I don't know. Um, but I don't think we would be living here. I mean, you know, there are worse places to live, of course. Um, but I think our plan B was always that if we can't have a family, we definitely need to go and do something very different and live a very different kind of life because I can't live the 2.4 children's style of life and not have children in it. Um so yeah, had our circumstances been different, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't live in the UK. And, and like I said before, I, you know, we both like warm weather. Um, and, you know, I, I prefer some of the, the kind of more European cultures to ours. And, you know, within Europe, you're only like a few hours anyway, travel wise to hop on a plane to come home anyway. Um, but now my son's at school, it, you know, it would be, it's like, when do you uproot them? So for now, I think we're just going to stay here and, you know, do the traveling through our kind of holidays and things. Yes. Now you mentioned um, a little bit of postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. um, your son's now in school. So what has it been like raising a son and then also working with other people who are going through IVF troubles? What's it been like raising a son? It's been wonderful. It's been hard. Um, he's not a very good sleeper still. So that's probably the thing I find the most difficult about being a parent. Um, he's a very early riser and is up multiple times in the night and he's four and a half years old. Um, so that's been the toughest thing. Um, I actually really love being a mum to a boy though. Um, I, I was convinced we were having a girl, not necessarily wanting it to be a girl, but I was convinced we were having a girl. But actually my personality, I'm probably more of a boy mum, I think. Um, I mean, I would have been so delighted either way but um you know I, I think I think that probably suits me more um and it, you know it's fantastic I mean it's everything that I ever wanted um you know and it's challenging and wonderful in equal equal measure and you know um I feel very blessed very blessed that I've you know I've got my son and it, it go it's cliche but it, it goes so fast you know um helping other people is like the best thing ever. This isn't just a job to me. This is everything. Like, as I said, you know, it massively helped me with my postnatal depression. Um, it means I think I can understand people. I mean, you know, everybody's got their own different journeys, but 
ultimately, I think if you've been through something yourself, you can truly understand what it's like. I also can anticipate certain points when I'm working with people that um, where I felt a bit overwhelmed and anxious about things and where they might as well to kind of preempt some of that stuff and to help them and, you know, to provide a space for people that there is no judgment that they can get impartial information and the facts, not just stuff that's on a glossy website or, you know, conflicting information that might be on the internet that's wrong, you know, and, the, and they make the right decision that's for them. I, I'm not there to try and influence their decisions, um, but it's about people being informed and supported and not feeling alone. And I think because the services I've created are from a place of the things that we really wish we had and couldn't find, you know, that, you know, the feedback from clients is, has been has been great and you know even for people when it hasn't worked said we don't regret working with you we don't regret going abroad and that's the the thing right like I can't promise anybody that I can um that they're gonna have a baby at the end of it like I can promise them that you know we can put you with the very best clinic that's gonna give you the best chance for your circumstances but nobody can promise you that so it's about how do you add value to people and you know save them time and support them and hold them through that process so that no matter what the outcome they're really pleased that they worked with you um because it's such a per- it's such a personal thing as well right and you know it, it, that's why I say it's a privilege because people are opening up their their lives to you and and trusting you um to help them through what is an extremely difficult time and traumatic time so it can be difficult in that you know it's an it's an emotional job um like I said not really a job for me but you know you are going through I I kind of at times feel like I'm going through it a little bit myself not from my own personal point of view but I I know when they say the way that they're feeling I can totally get what they're saying because I you know I've been there um but I think that then makes me good at what I do because I you know I completely understand. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it is the best job in the world and I absolutely love it. And I can't believe that this is now what I get to do every day. Um, you know, and to, to kind of have the impact, like I, I decided very early on that I wanted to help more people globally to have more, you know, to make informed decisions about fertility treatment, to have, you know, to have access to some free information and also to be able to, you know, have more accessible treatment um, and more affordable treatment, more supported treatment. And so every time I get somebody saying, I listened to your podcast and it was so helpful, thank you, or I read your blog, or I get a client testimonial, um, or, you know, somebody sends me a picture of a 20 of a week scan, you know, all these things are just like, it's the best feeling. And it means that my infertility somehow feels that it's not been in, in vain. Um, you know, and like for us, we thought we'd have two children and actually, you know, we've got one and we're very, very grateful and lucky for that, but we don't want to go through fertility treatment again, like we're done. And so, you know, I get it from a secondary infertility point of view now. Um, you know, and I think for me, helping other people to have babies is, you know, it kind of takes the focus off that means I can concentrate on my son and, you know, helping other people, um, which I think I'm the kind of person that enjoys helping people anyway. Like when I worked in advertising 
and it was all about money and it was all about I just was quite cutthroat and I was like oh this is not what I want to do and actually when I came back to the UK after leaving New Zealand um, I ended up working in a school for a bit in like a pastoral role um, and then I went to work for our children and family service in the UK working with vulnerable families so I think that definitely appealed more to me and my nature so this fits quite um quite nicely with that it's hard obviously if it doesn't work for people um you know it's hard not to feel some of that responsibility which I know is nothing to do with me but you know I just so you so badly want it to work for people because you know what it's what it's like but yeah I love it I really love it and do you keep in touch with any of your clients after they've stopped working with you Yes, most most people want to stay um, in touch, which is absolutely lovely. And I get updates from people's um, children. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of people do stay in touch. Um, and a lot of clients who, you know, they leave if they're pregnant will then kind of send me scan pictures. And if they're not pregnant, you know, they'll, they'll kind of keep me up to date with the next step. So I had one couple who have actually decided to adopt and they're going through that process at the moment which for them is super exciting. Other people who are like, I'm planning our next, we're planning our next cycle. We just want to stay in touch. Um, so that's really, really lovely as well. Cause I do, you know, I do care genuinely and like to kind of follow their journeys um, from when they finish working with me as well. Yes. Now, is there anything else you would like to talk about before I start to wrap things up? Just to say, you know, come and come and find me on socials, which I know you, you'll, you'll put on the wrap up, but I've also, you know, I've got loads of free resources. So if you sat listening to this thinking, wow, this is really kind of opened my eyes up to the potential of having fertility treatment abroad. Now I know a lot of your listeners are in the States where it is so expensive for treatment, you know, whether it's donation like egg or sperm donation or own egg treatment. Um, so I've got loads of free resources, which I know you'll link out. So go and check them out. Cause you know, they're super useful in helping you to understand more really and to kind of work out whether or not it could be an option for you. Um, and one of the things that I would say is a good starting point is I've pulled together like a free um, process, short step-by-step guide to the process of treatment abroad. Because when I was Googling and just trying to find out like, how does it all work? So I could work out whether or not it would be right for, for us or not. I couldn't find the information. It was so frustrating. So I've created just a free, really simple guide um, to help reduce some of that stress and overwhelm. So I'll get Sarah to link that, um, you know, in the show notes and go and have a look, but come and, you know, come and follow me over on, on Instagram. You can drop me a message. Um, and you know, just (sighs) consider it as an option. If this is something, if you're looking at private fertility treatment, um, you know, it, we don't want cheap fertility treatment. We don't want fertility treatments and where it's going to be unsafe you know we need to do things properly but you know these there are some great clinics out there um and actually being away from home for treatment can be really nice like away from the stresses and strains of home and work life and if you enjoy traveling um you know you can kind of tie that in because you're not at the clinic the whole time you're there so I really enjoyed that factor about being away and a lot of my clients will say once they get there are like oh yeah wow okay like we understand what you mean now and we've been able to relax or we've been able to go and see the sites or eat the food or whatever their thing is. And like that is a massive thing that I think that shouldn't be underestimated. Um, and, you know, by stretching your budget further, by say moving out of the States or wherever you live, you know, that could be the difference between you potentially having, you know, a child or not. 
Um, and no, of course, are not any guarantees, but it is that numbers game. And I'm just, you know, I'm just so passionate about spreading the message about the potential of going abroad for treatment if it's right for you. Because like I said at the beginning, I wouldn't have my son if we'd have stayed in the UK. Yes. And as you said, like, I will leave all of that in the description and will all be on my website as well. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have anything to do with what we've talked about. My question for you is what animal would you want to be reincarnated as? Oh, that's a good one. Cause I've got an animal mad loving son who asks me quite frequently what, <laughs> what kind of animal I'd like to be. Um, hmm. I think a sloth because they sleep a lot. Like sleep is very much on my, <laughs> on my mind at the minute. So maybe a sloth and they hang out in the trees in warm countries and they get to eat and chill. Um, so today, because you're asking me when I'm tired, I'm going to go with sloth. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving some great links for Emma in the description. So the free step resource that she mentioned her instagram her website and her podcast if you would like to go check that out as well so feel free to check all of that out in the description or on our website our website is in the description as well it brings you to all of our guests resources and social media links and it brings you to the podcast social media we are on instagram facebook and linkedin if you'd like to go follow those pages to hear more about upcoming episodes And if you would like to be a guest on an episode, my email is in the description as well. You can just reach out to me. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. So thank you so much, Emma, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.